Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone this morning, whether you're here with us in the room or you're with us online. I'm just glad we're together. Amen. You know, I did not know that Jason was going to turn our attention to the stars and the planets this morning when I wrote this introduction to uh, this morning's sermon. You probably know that we live in a galaxy called the Milky Way. It is one of at least a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. Try this fact on for size. If our Milky Way galaxy were the size of the continent of North America, okay, so take our Milky Way galaxy and say it's the size of the northern Arctic coasts of Canada and reaches down to the Panama Canal. That's the North American continent. And let's say our whole galaxy is that size. Then our solar system, right? the handful of planets that are revolving around the sun, would fit in a coffee cup. That's our solar system. And somewhere, if you look real hard, in that coffee cup would be Earth. And we believe that the creator of all of this came to Earth, stepped into time and space, and lived within it. And while he was here, he prayed. And in his living and in his dying, he invited us into his cosmic, eternal story. And that when we, when we pray, we are joining with him in connecting to the creator of all of this. All of this, including you and me. We're continuing our series this morning, When Jesus Prays. Looking at some of the prayers Jesus prayed, learning what they teach us about prayer, about Jesus, and about ourselves. And this morning, we're going to spend our time in the first five verses of John 17. I'm going to read them just all together here, these five verses, and then go from there. John 17, starting in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this chance to worship you as as we've been, been so beautifully led in. And now, God, as we open your word, We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher today, and that you would take this passage and plant it in our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let's move through this passage in Jesus' words and thoughts and prayers here, because leaning in and listening to Jesus is always, always a good thing, amen? And that's what we're going to do here. We're just going to lean in and listen to this prayer of Jesus and wring from it all the truth that we can. And we're going to start with these first five verses. It begins, after Jesus said this. Well, what are we talking about here? What's some context? What did Jesus just say? If you flip back to John 16 and 15 and 14 and 13, in fact, you'll see that Jesus and his disciples have been in and are now just leaving the upper room. It's a room, that's how we refer to this space in which Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples. A lot of things happen in that room. A lot of great stuff gets shared 
John records that. It's come to be known as the Upper Room Discourse. All these things that Jesus shares there in those chapters. And some of them, uh, some of the things he says are the, some of the most beloved and comforting words that, are, that we find uh, in the Scriptures. These are all quotes from Jesus from the Upper Room Discourse. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back to take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you love me, he says, keep my commands. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he says. Greater love has no one than this, that they would lay down their life for their friends. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And then finally, these words He says just before the passage we're about to, to, to take apart and, and dive into today. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Those were the last words that he says before he enters into this prayer in John 17. After Jesus said all of that, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Now what we're about to read, and we're going to spend today and the next two Sundays in this prayer, we're only taking the first part today, it is his longest recorded prayer in the Scriptures. What we're about to dive into will teach us a lot about this faith that we profess, about the one we've placed our faith in, and a lot about how faith works. So here's how Jesus began his prayer. Father, the hour has come. Now what is about to happen? We're at the place in Jesus' story. No event, no moment matters more than the ones that are just ahead. Father, the hour has come. The rugged cross is imminent. The resurrection and the empty tomb are soon to follow. We're about to honor and celebrate that as we go to Good Friday and Easter coming up next month. This is what is about to happen. The hour has come. What is this hour? The Gospel of John refers to Jesus' hour 17 times. It uses that word hour to refer to this anticipated climax, this culmination of Jesus' ministry and, and when he makes possible all the things that he does make possible. This, this hour in which the hinge of human history, on which that human history turns, there's a one point where Jesus says to the woman at the well, the hour is coming when people will be able to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus makes that possible. We get the chance to connect with the creator of the universe, the one who knows us, loves us, the one who made us. We get to worship him in spirit and in truth. That hour is about to come because Jesus is about to make that connection possible. Multiple places in the Gospels we read that people would not or could not fulfill their threats on his life because his hour, it says, had not yet come. Maybe that phrase sounds familiar to you as you, if you've read any of the stories of Jesus. At one point, people wanted to push him off a cliff. They were so upset by what he was saying. Other times, people would threaten his life, and it would say, but his hour had not yet come. But now Jesus begins his prayer, Father, 
the hour has come. In the Gospel of Luke, we read these scenes, uh, the, in these scenes, they are referred to as the hour of darkness. Jesus begins his prayer with, it's time, it's time, Father. Everything, and I mean everything, all the way back to Adam and Eve, everything has led to this hour. Our holy God giving his life for broken humanity. So man, the weight of the words that Jesus uses here as he opens his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Those are not light words. Those are, that's not a trite phrase. This hour has been a long time coming. And now it's here. What does he say next? He says to God, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. This is not only an hour of darkness, but an hour of glory that is ahead as well. Now, if you and I were to pray a prayer like that, it'd be a little egotistical, right? right? Glorify me so that I can glorify you. That's, only Jesus can make that request in a way that makes real sense. He is God in the flesh. He is God on earth. He's the, what, what, what is described as the Son of God, right? So he can make that request. For us, it would be selfish. But for him, as we're about to see, it's selfless. Because the way he's about to be glorified or lifted up from the earth, which is a way of talking about crucifixion on a cross, he's going to point people to God by giving his life. So your son, he says, may glorify you. What's about to happen is the most glorious thing that has ever happened on planet earth. God coming in the flesh, walking on earth, teaching us, setting an example, but then more than that, culminating that ministry by willingly laying down his life, letting it be uh, taken in a brutal way, and then rising from the tomb. The most glorious thing that has ever happened is about to happen. And just as a little aside here, as we reflect on that fact, as is so often true, our darkest hours, you may be going through a dark hour right now. Jesus is about to face his darkest hour. Our darkest hours can produce our brightest outcomes. Isn't that true? And you might be going through a dark hour right now. I want you to just be reminded of that this morning. This is just kind of a little quick aside, that whatever you're going through is a page or two, a chapter in your story, but it's not the whole story. This isn't Jesus' whole story. And he's moving through something that at the other end is most glorious. But right now, it's dark. Right now, it's, it, it's agonizing, as we'll see as we move through this prayer and into some prayers that he prays uh, in the garden just a little bit later. You might be going through a dark time. Just know that you're surrounded by people who know and care and love you. And that God, more than any of us, knows and cares and loves. And that you're not alone in that hour. Jesus knows he's not alone, and he's speaking with the Father about all of this. The hour has come, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. Now, what does glory mean, and what does glorify mean? Since Jesus is using this term, let's make sure we know what he's talking about. 
the easiest and I think clearest way to define the, the verb glorify is to amplify or to magnify, to honor something. If I'm glorifying something, I'm drawing your attention to it. I'm kind of shining a spotlight on it. I want you to see it. I want it to become large in front of you. I want it to become clear to you. I'm going to turn it up. Right? These are all ways of kind of illustrating the idea that is the word glorify. I'm going to point you to it and draw your attention to it and hopefully make it magnified, amplified, and honorable to you. That is what it means to glorify. A great uh, passage that gives us some instruction about how we are to do this is in, when Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 when he says to us, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, the way we let, let our light shine, the way we live our lives uh, as wholeheartedly, not perfectly, right? Not holier than thou, not self-righteously, just honorably, just with some ethic, with some learning, with just trying to move through life in an authentic way, telling people we're sorry when we make mistakes, right? Or when we hurt them and picking ourselves up and asking for forgiveness and moving on and hopefully getting wiser along the way. When that light begins to shine, because this is the way we're choosing to live our lives, it sheds light on not us in the end, but on God, right? That as my light begins to shine, as your light begins to shine, it has one purpose, that people would see that and they'd see the reflection of the God we love, Jesus, our Lord, and that they then would be intrigued by that, and they would want to glorify the Father. They would want to learn more about and, and point themselves toward Him and begin to think of the difference that God is making in our lives Maybe he'll make a difference in my life too, right? In their life too. That, that's what it means to glorify. And so like Jesus did, we aim to live our lives in a way that point others to God, that shine that spotlight, not on ourselves, but on him. I think of what John the Baptist once said about Jesus. He said, he must become greater. I want to dial Jesus up. I must become less. That it's really about him. So Jesus sought to bring glory to the Father. This is inherent in this prayer here. It's very obvious. We should do the same. We should follow his example. Verse 2, Jesus goes on, For you granted him authority, speaking of himself, over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now, Jesus says this later uh, to the apostles, right? Before he ascends, he's, he's died, he's risen, and now he's about to ascend. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him also he made the universe. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king of everything. Sometimes we realize that, sometimes we don't, but there's great solace that can be taken in remembering that, in realizing that again. Jesus is king of everything, right? Just want, I, I just, every now and then I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure. Jesus is. He's Lord. He's king of everything. We don't always realize it, but when we do, remember it again. It's like, oh yeah. This Lord I love and who loves me, he's king of this whole thing. And his, as we're reading here, his is not a lordship of command and control. When you hear that word authority, you might think, well, what's that all about? Is this a power trip? What's going on? Why is this important? Why is he praying about his authority over all things and over all people? Here's why it's important. It's not a lordship of command and control 
or of domination or intimidation, but of love and of life and of grace and, yes, of power. He's for us, never against us. He's always for our flourishing and our thriving, which is only found in Him. So when He has authority, what does He do with it? What did we just read? When He has authority, He gives life. He's authorized to give eternal life. That's what He does with His authority. That's what authority means when your God is perfect love. Authority isn't then something to be fearful of, to be intimidated by, or to not trust. His authority is an authority to give us eternal life. So one of the things that tells me is this. What happens here and in countless churches around the world is some of the most significant stuff that happens anywhere at any time. It won't make headlines anywhere but heaven. It won't seem to change the tide of world affairs, though it changes lives and ripples into generations. Its impact will be scoffed at or minimized or dismissed. But it is power to change human hearts and minds, to wake up sleeping souls. What is it? This most important thing that happens in places like this and in countless others? It's simple. People are receiving eternal life. There was a day when I got to receive that in some local church where I grew up. You've received it, or maybe you'll receive it today. We continue to receive it when we gather together in worship and then listen to God's holy word. We are receiving eternal life. Jesus, this is what Jesus has the authority to give, and this is what he's happy to give and share with us. What is this eternal life? Jesus answers this in verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, referring to himself, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Now, whenever we hear that verb know or knowing in the scriptures, we've got to remind ourselves that they don't mean it the way we tend to mean it in our culture. The word know in our culture and our way of thinking, you know, it's more intellectual. It's about having some facts down. Maybe I'll make sure I pass the quiz. Uh, I know this stuff or that thing over there or this subject matter that's for my work or you name it. But in the, in, in the scriptural sense, the verb know is always about intimate closeness. It's about relationship. It's, a, it's, a, it's far deeper than just some facts in our head. It is an ever-expanding, ever-deepening way, uh, uh, an understanding, a fellowship with, a close contact with another, to know another. And Jesus is saying here that eternal life is all about knowing God in this way, in relationship. Eternal life is the knowledge of a person See, religion, and maybe you grew up on a religion. I know I had a decent dose of that growing up too. Religion knows about things, or thinks it does. Religion even knows some facts about God. But faith knows the way we read it here, intimately, viscerally, deeply, because it pushes us toward a relationship with God, not a distant knowing about God. And so this knowing and relationship, it's worthy of our whole life's pursuit. Think of it like this. I relish in getting to know my wife and kids, right? 
discovering new things about them, uh, uh, you know, asking them questions, finding out what's going on in their life today, who they are today compared to who they've been, and, and on and on. Just, I relish getting to know them, right? They are eminently imi- important to me, no matter how long we've been in each other's lives. That same delight awaits us in our relationship with God. We can continually, ever more deeply, get to know Him. See, I need God more than anything that I might get from God. So when Jesus says eternal life is knowing the one true God, what He's saying is that is the most important way to spend your life for eternity. Getting to know the God who already knows and loves you, who created you, who's with you. So more than just a list of requests that I hope he'll grant or blessings I expect him to provide to my life, it's him that is the prize. It's, It's a knowledge of him that is the treasure. It's a relationship with him that is true wealth and gives life real meaning. There's this passage in Philippians where the Apostle Paul talks about these credentials that he's amassed over his years and the prestige that has come from those credentials and all kinds of accomplishments that he has that might impress others or may even make him sound like he's got, he knows a lot about God. Again, a lot, he knows a lot about God. But then he says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, I consider everything else worthless when when compared with what? The infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's that word, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Friends, whatever else this life contains or doesn't contain that you wish it had, There's one thing that can be true of your life from now until the day you pass on, and it will be the most important thing of all those days, the chance to know Jesus Christ, your Lord. To know Him, to continually get to know Him, to enjoy life with Him. No matter what else you do or do not accomplish, no matter what other trials or tragedies do or do not enter your life, there's one thread that can be woven throughout the rest of your days, and it will in the end be the most important, most precious one, to know Jesus Christ. For his sake, Paul says, I've discarded everything else, accounting counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one, this is what knowledge is, become one with him, to know him to be united with Him. See, it's a relationship. And so when we talk about prayer ourselves, what we're talking about is spending our lives knowing God, enjoying that relationship, whatever that looks like. Now, I know for myself, maybe you can relate, sometimes I'm a little hard on myself when it comes to that relationship. And I think, man, I get so easily distracted, or I've got so much going on, and I don't know if I'm always very good at praying. The other day I read something that was helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you too. But this book was talking about how when we contemplate God, right? We sit, we think about God, we think on God, we turn to God in prayer. Uh, the, the author was saying, this. think of it as not being that much different than any other relationship. You're still you, and you're still a human being, and you're choosing to, as you might choose to sit and spend time with someone else that you love, you're choosing to spend some time with God. Just know that God loves you infinitely. His patience is bottomless. He's absolutely uh, 
you know, just full of love and grace for you. And so when you sit and you get distracted, when you sit and you remember the ache in your feet or your back, when you, rem- when you sit and pray with him and you remember the stuff you've got to do, just remember that stuff happens in your other relationships too. You can get a little distracted or you're still you even when you're with your spouse or your best friend or you're having coffee with someone that you care about, right? And you're trying to have a conversation. You're still distracted. And you're going to be distracted sometimes when you're talking to God too. But that doesn't change the relationship, right? That relationship's still there and it can still grow. Even for every time you spend time with that person, including God, even when sometimes during that time you're a little distracted. That helped me. I don't know if it it would be useful for you, but we just need to remember prayer is a relationship. That's the framework that we need to see. And our relationship with God is something we get to enjoy. Let's go on. Verse 4. Jesus now says this, I brought you glory on earth, by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, he's anticipating the cross, and he's anticipating the empty tomb, and he's anticipating the fact that he's about to now give his life for humanity. This is work. It's not his only work, but it is now the final part of his work. We read a little bit earlier that Jesus, as he is headed toward Jerusalem, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem, that he was set his mind, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, knowing what would await him there, he still knew, he still went forward, he had work to do. And he's acknowledging that here at this moment in his prayer, the good, the labor of love that is his life, he's going to keep that work going and then bring it to completion here soon. Whenever I read about Jesus, when he talks about work, I got to admit, it's motivating to me. In John chapter 4, we read that Jesus at one point said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and what? Finish his work. That he knew that he he, he was there for a reason, and he was determined to see that reason through. In John 9, a little later, he says to Uh, He says to the disciples, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. When I, these are two of my favorite scriptures, and they motivate me because what I want to, what I want to be reminded of is that life is short. I got to work while it is day because night is coming. My earthly life will sunset and fade, and I won't be here any longer. So while I have the time that I have, I want to do the work of him who sent me and the work of him who sent us all. The work of him who sent Jesus. My food, Jesus says, and I want it to be my food as well. It's to do that work and carry it on to completion. This ethic was carried by his followers as well. I think about what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He's about to say goodbye to them. He won't see them again, and he says this, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for what? Finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. This is very similar to what we just heard Jesus pray. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. I consider my life, the the, the framework through which I see my life, the meaning that I believe my life has, Paul is saying, is to finish the work assigned to me, the work of telling others about the wonderful grace of God. I can't help but think that for all of us as followers of Jesus, there's some version of that that is our work as well. 
Now, is our work ever really complete, so to speak? Perhaps not. But the question is, have I run my leg of the race with all I have? Have I relished the opportunity to be spent in a worthy cause, to invest my life in something that will outlast it? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Here's what I'm joining Jesus in praying for. This is the work that I believe we get to do. I'm always just praying with an aching heart before God that we are all growing in our faith. Open Bibles and open lives in our small groups that we're caring for and encouraging one another, that we're entering into discipling relationships with one another. I'm praying that we're reaching out and inviting others into this life, inviting them to church, being a good neighbor, our classmate, our coworker, that we're listening to people's pain, that we're caring for needs, that we're setting an example of love. All of this, friends, is work assigned to us by the Father of us all. Let it be our food. Work while it is day, for night is coming. This is what Jesus says. I've completed the work. I'm here to do that. I'm entering the last chapter. And now he says in verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Here we're being reminded of a pretty, pretty wild mind-bending truth. Jesus is God in the flesh. He humbled himself. He comes to earth. God became human, that human beings could become children of God. Scripture explains to us, as best as we're able to kind of express this mystery, that Jesus, the Son of God, laid aside or emptied himself of his full-on deity to walk among us. And now he knows that this chapter is reaching its final pages, and he will give his life for all of humanity. He will rise from death. He will ascend to be Lord of all. So now he says, Father, I'm heading back to the glory I had with you before the world began. He's going to put back on all that he had set aside for this chapter of time that he was on earth. We are participating in a cosmic story. This reminds us of that fact. An arc that spans the entire scope of the universe and encompasses all of humanity. It's amazing to think about. Last summer, the first images from NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope were shared with the public. They offer a stunning view of some of the oldest corners of our universe. This is what's called the Carina Nebula. It showcases this just glittering array of newborn and emerging stars. They call it a cradle in which stars are born. Stars that didn't exist now do. Jesus, friends sees that every day. And he sees you, and he sees me every day as well. This is who Jesus is. Eternal life, always creating, always forming, always birthing. That's true in the universe, and that's true in us as well. We may be part of a vast Universe, but we are far, far from small or insignificant. We remind ourselves of that each week when we take communion. If you grab your bread in the cup, I invite you to go ahead and, and pick that up. 
What did we just read here? We read Jesus say, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Every week when we take the bread, we remember something Jesus said in that upper room, something that had happened just before this prayer. He says that this bread represents his body, uh, and as he broke the bread, he said, my body will be given for you. And he asks us to take and eat and remember him the sacrifice that he made, the love that that is behind that sacrifice, and the eternal life it makes possible. So let's take and eat together. And it says that just after that, he took the cup. And he says that this cup is a new promise from God in my blood, that I'm about to shed my blood to seal this promise between humanity and God. And that as you come to me, as you put your faith in me, as you accept my grace, he says, and my forgiveness by faith, you can receive eternal life. And you can know God. Let's rejoice in the fact that we get to know God and take the drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to know you and that we are getting to know you. Father, that's a pretty, pretty huge, um, kind of difficult to grasp in a way concept. The idea that little old us can get to know the vastness and the depth and the beauty and the amazingness that is you. And yet, that's exactly what you make possible. Not only that, it's exactly what you want, what you delight in. And Jesus, what you gave your life to provide. So, Lord, help us to live into that truth today. As we've heard Jesus' prayer here, as we've listened in on what he he said, and those words are now echoing for us, Holy Spirit, plant them deep in our hearts. Father, I pray that each one of us will walk out of here today remembering the thing from this message, from this passage, that you need us to remember, that you want to see planted in our own hearts and lives today. You're so good at that, Lord, and we thank you for it ahead of time. In Jesus' name, amen.